Welcome to Roundtables on Race, the podcast that seeks to explore the relationship between race and the many facets of our society. I'm your host, the Reverend Kathy Walker. This first season is an exploration of race and the news media. And today we're taking a look at training and what goes into the making of a journalist. We're so glad to be joined today by two guests who have a deep knowledge of and a hand in educating budding journalists. We welcome Dr. Tracy Everbach, a professor at the University of North Texas Mayborn School of Journalism. She teaches writing and reporting, race, gender, and media, and graduate classes in media studies and qualitative research. Her research interests include gender and race in media, newsroom management, and sports coverage. Among her many publications is Testing Tolerance, Addressing Controversy in the Journalism and Mass Communication Classroom, published just last year. Welcome, Dr. Averbach. Thank you so much for having me. Also joining us today is Susan King, Dean of the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill's Hussman School of Journalism and Media, as well as the school's John Thomas Kerr Distinguished Professor. After starting her broadcast journalism career in Buffalo, New York, she spent more than 20 years in Washington, D.C. as an anchor and reporter covering politics, including serving as a White House correspondent for ABC News. She also reported for CBS, NBC, and CNN, and hosted the Diane Reem Show, one of my favorites, and Talk of the Nation for National Public Radio. She has been the Dean of UNC's Hussman School of Journalism since 2012. Thank you for joining us, Dean King. Pleased to be here, but please call me Susan. So we thought it was very important um, in producing episodes on race in the media in our very first year as a foundation to help us and our listeners understand the historical role that media has played in shaping some of the images of people of color in particular and contributing perhaps to many of the stereotypes. We want to focus today on journalism, students, and their formation as they prepare to begin hopefully wonderful and long careers. Of course, there have been some dramatic paradigm shifts over the years, including greater representation of women and people of color in our newsrooms and in broadcast areas. And yet some of the stereotypes are still prevalent, particularly in what is generally labeled mainstream media. So Tracy, I would like to ask you first, what goes into the education of a journalist? That's a big question. Um, well, let me tell you, I teach a class called Race and Gender in the Media, which actually um, is meant to fill a gap in what I've seen over the years in journalism education. Back in the 80s, when I went to journalism school, no one mentioned race, no one mentioned gender. Um, you know, you learned the basic rules of ethics and you learned how to write a story um, in the inverted pyramid style and maybe some other styles. And um, none of this was ever mentioned. Something that I've learned over the years since I left journalism and went into academia, um, I started studying you know, the history of media and the history of how all of this developed and started seeing that there are definitely patterns uh, in the coverage over the years in which certain groups have been excluded um, 
marginalized, trivialized. That would include, you know, people of color. That would include LGBTQIA people. That would include women. Um, you know, and we have made some progress in correcting some of those wrongs over the years, but there's still a, a lot of stereotyping. So um, I think it's really important that we bring up these issues in every single journalism class, not just the class on race, gender, and the media that I teach, but when I teach other classes on writing and reporting, I bring up these issues as well. Um, and, you know, when I teach classes on research methods, I bring up these issues as, as well, because students really need to know about this history and really need to know um, the facts about how we report about different groups. So um, I can share with you some of the statistics later, but um, I, I do think that that's an important part of journalism education and it is being included now in the classroom when it wasn't maybe 20, 30 years ago. That's that's helpful. That sounds really, really great. So um, Susan, let me turn to you for a moment because you're the dean. So you will have a, um, you have to look at this for an entire department of people. How do you determine, or do you get to determine really the curriculum and some of the core necessary teaching as we prepare these young people to go out into the field of journalism? Well, let me step back one, one iota um, and uh, defer also uh, to Tracy because she is developing a whole curriculum. I came with one experience you didn't mention, and I like to say sometimes I've done every single job our students could possibly want to have. So that's why I'm a good dean. I've done journalism, I've broadcasting, I've done it all. And I came from the Carnegie Corporation of New York, which is Andrew Carnegie's money. And among other things, I was vice president and thinking about all our outreach on things from education to Africa to nuclear nonproliferation. And I started an initiative that my fantastic boss and mentor who just died in April, Vartan Gregorian, wanted me to start. And it was like a passion project. It was called the Carnegie Night Knight being the Knight Foundation of Miami, the most important journalism funder in America, the Carnegie Knight Initiative on the Future of Journalism Education. And we started this in 2002, talking to five of the top university um, schools, both coasts, one in the middle, um, and the deans. And by the way, they were all white males. I always felt like I was in a singing group, Susan King and the, or, you know, and the white, white deans. Now there are many more um, deans of different complexions and genders. But at any rate, we began talking about how do we prepare another generation? Because we are a completely different generation now of students and a different generation of journalists. We are digital. We are not newspapers only. We're not community oriented. We are um, fragmented as a society. We have um, online. We have on cable. We are different. One other piece. So I came in with a perspective of what then we expanded to 10 different journalism schools perspective of what was going on. And I found that many of them were really behind the times, even the best. They were training people for what had been, and we needed to train them for where, where the university is going, but or the business is going, and we don't know where. So I used to say, we have to think about corners. We have to get students who are really being flexible and, and per perceiving change, and they are comfortable with change. One other piece. 
I was the first woman in every newsroom I was in. I am one of the lucky white women results of the Kerner Commission. The Kerner Commission was all about America media, not looking like America, but white women really got a lot of the advancement before African-Americans did, although I was very lucky to have fantastic colleagues in my broadcaster career. And so I went into every newsroom as a woman who had a different perspective. I was trying to, and I'm an English major. What did I know? I did a master's degree. I worked my way up from secretary because they asked me how fast I could type, not how could I research? The guys got those dumb jobs. I got the secretarial job, but I worked my way up. So everything about me is expanding the newsroom role and diversity. That is deep, deep, deep within me. And we are a changed society since I started. We are no longer going to be a majority white country. Certainly North Carolina is not going to be a majority white state. So changes in the air. How do I prepare young uh, young hungry, curious, would-be journalists for a changed America. That's what goes. And so we, the first thing I did was start to work with my faculty because I don't have a magic wand. You have to work with faculty to really outline what we needed to prepare journalists for a different tomorrow. And I'm going to just use one course because it's going to play off you, Tracy. As you say, you know, diversity and, and that kind of piece is in your course. But I realized we were giving them writing 101 but we weren't giving any, everyone visual 101. And visual is where the stereotypes happen, okay? So in my newsroom, uh, I, I, I anchored for many years with a fantastic woman, Renee Poussaint, African-American woman, who went on to primetime live at ABC News. And we would sit there and we'd have a short little story about crime statistics or something. And the visual would always be black people walking down the street. The two of us would go out of our mind because somebody would have yelled down 30 seconds of just voiceover, you know, and how are you building into society deep into them where crime is, if that's the visual yet. So we now have a, a visual 101 that every single student in the class has. It's one of the things that I brought to it because the vocabulary of writing is critical. The vocabulary, the visual is. And in the 21st century, the visual is very, very important. So I hope that begins to answer your question, um, Kathy, because, Absolutely. yeah, because we, we have to, we have to think big and we have to work with all our colleagues to really um, re revitalize journalism as we knew it. It's interesting because truth be told, so I was a journalism student when I went to, when I left high school and went to the community college in Miami. So I was at Miami Dade College and, um, I, and had an associate's degree in journalism. And I can remember that the inverted pyramid, that's what took me back. And, um, but even in writing those stories and then writing stories for radio, which is where I then ended up for a time, um, it was amazing how you could somehow work the stereotype even into written copy um, where there was no visual. And somehow you would just create something or the only stories that you would tell or how you decide which stories could be told would be influenced by who was in that story. Yeah. Um, and so, and I think as we look back on that now, I'm sure a lot of mistakes were made. You know, a lot of things that could have been avoided. Um, we certainly were contributors to. So I think what I'd like to, un to know, and maybe Tracy, um, because I love this thing of the visual, because it is so true. You think about the number of times you see only, um, you see people in handcuffs, just a visual and and it just but it's always one color person and so you know so that we try to keep 
make sure that people understand. And I think to a point where it's really interesting because I know that in the African American community, one of the things always is I, you hear people kind of collectively pray, oh God, just don't let this person be black this time, you know? And so this idea that if just this time it could be, they'll show somebody else, or if they don't show anyone, the assumption is that that person is probably not a black person. Um, so it's interesting because you see these patterns, right? This is the standard practice across the country. So you have to imagine, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Tracy, that this is something that is taught or how do we learn this? How do students mm -hmm. learn that this, these are the images that we should put up there? I mean, it, it all goes back to our upbringing. Um, you know, we learn from, we learn from media. We also learn from people who raise us. We also learn from the society around us. And, you know, there's no doubt that black and Latino people are more likely to be stereotyped as criminals or thugs with quotation marks around it, um, you know, than white people, even though, um, you know, I, I, I get students in my classes who believe that most people in prison are black people, which is not true. <laughs> if you look at the statistics, most people in prison are white people. The white population is much bigger than the black population, which, you know, but when you look at it um, proportionally, yes, there is a higher percentage of black men in prison than there are white men in prison. But people just get, get these ideas um, and as Susan said, a lot of it is visuals because usually when you, you know, on, on local TV news in particular, um, usually the, the visuals shown for, you know, uh, someone being arrested for a crime, you know, a violent crime, you'll usually see a black or Latino person being put in handcuffs. Whereas when there's white collar crimes, which we all know happen all the time, those do not get as much attention. Um, those are not thought of as the same type of criminals. Um, you know, and usually it's white people being arrested for white collar crime. Um, another factor is you think about, you know, where most television stations are headquartered, local TV news, they're going to be in an urban area. So it's going to be easier for them to go and cover crime stories in the urban area rather than going to the suburban area, um, which is harder to get to. But and, and we all know that there are crimes that happen in the suburban areas, but it, they're just less likely to be able to, you know, have the resources to go out to all of these different communities. Um, I'll give you an example of one of the one of the things I, one of the items I'd show in my class. Um, I don't know if y'all remember Antoine Dodson, who sort of became a celebrity by saying, hide your kids, hide your wife. Um, and they made his uh, video, you know, they auto-tuned his video and everything. It came from a local TV news clip. Well, one of the things I show in class is the actual original clip of that. And that was an attempted rape case. And a lot of people don't realize that. And when they watch the original news clip, they can see the horrible stereotypes that this station, I believe it was in Alabama, 
perpetuates about black people. You know, I show them the clip. They realize the case was about attempted rape. They realize that, you know, the, that he was portrayed as someone who lives in the projects, who, you know, maybe talks a, a funny way. Um, and, and the whole concentration was on him. He was the brother of the victim. Um, but it totally ignores the fact that this was a story about attempted rape. And so then I asked them, well, what do you think would happen if this, if this story had happened in a wealthy white community and it was an attempted rape? And they can start to see the differences and the stereotypes that, that we all play into, most of them unconscious. You know, they, I don't think that a lot of these reporters do this on purpose, but um, it's just, you know, it's unconscious and they're not thinking about what they're doing. So I, I want to say something optimistic because this is also okay. such a tough, com you know, conversation. And but I think it plays right off, Tracy, what you're doing. Part of what we as educators have to do is to put our students in the position of not just individuality, but the systems that grow up. And so, you know, kind of uh, shorthand and broadcasting, you said it well, Kathy, doing in, in radio, you know, because everything is so tight in broadcasting, right? Using the shorthand of a stereotype becomes sort of a vehicle that people use, right? And then that creates systems of, of, um, of that are, are wrong. So we're constantly trying to put our students, particularly in journalism students now, into those systems. So they realize racism isn't just an individual being racist towards something else. That there are systems within our in our country that have set up in, in, in issues that they have to be aware of. So I wanna use one which is optimistic yet built on just the horror of what we are in as at the moment as a country. I covered police brutality when I was an early Washington reporter in a county that had had quite a few police brutality issues. And so whenever I did a latest uh, incident, you'd put it in the context that there had been charges before. But what you had was a police statement of what the incident was about and a family statement, okay? And so authority versus a family. It always felt authority over, you know, overruled. And it had been going on for many years. So I, as a reporter, always felt frustrated by my ability to tell that police brutality story. Fast circuit to the phone system where every single person has a telephone. Pulitzer Prize to a young woman, Ms. Frazier, who captured with great courage the horrific end of um, George Floyd's life. It is no longer the journalism people on their own or police saying one thing, a family saying another. We now have new digital information that journalists have to um, interpret and young journalists have to understand um, to be able to put into the system. And that has put us into a moment of racial reckoning in this country like never before. And it's part of what the media also was able to share with not only the United States, but with the globe. So the optimism is that all this digital change has also put more information at our hand. And so the values of what we teach our students are most important that they have the right judgments, they have the right values, and they put context to the stories we have to deal with this at the time. And that is encouraging. How how much um, do you think now journalists, um, new journalists, are going to be impacted by telephones, but more importantly by um, residents who contribute so much when the reporter is not even on the scene? 
that, um, you know, that everybody can be a journalist. I mean, I think that, um, true, Ms. Frazier perhaps is the one who has taught us this, um, you know, in a horrific way, but in some other positive ways, do you think that we would be able to, how can we incorporate um, those people in their own communities telling their stories and with the assistance and guidance of trained journalists? Tracy, you want to uh, take that first? Um, sure. I mean, you know, it, it, I, I look at my students who are, you know, 18 through 25, and they've all grown up with digital. They've all grown up using a phone, um, using computers. So to them, it's just like a second nature. So, you know, I, I think that, like you said, we're going to see more of this. We're going to see more of incorporating you know, people in the community's video, um, along with stories, uh, more of incorporating social media, we, we see it now, um, you know, a story based on a bunch of tweets that happen. Um, so I do think that that um, residents of communities are contributing a great deal to journalism and that we have to listen to them. That said, everything needs to be vetted as well, because it's, you know, there, there, there's material out there that's faked, there's material out there that's staged. And so we as journalists have to be careful to verify and vet all the information that we get. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's terrific that these tools are in the hands of citizens and that we can see these things happen that we only, as Susan said, would have gotten through the filter of the authorities in the past. I mean, I can look back on stories that I did when I was a reporter that, you know, I, I just took the word of police without getting further into it. Or maybe I went out into the community and people were not really willing to talk to me or said they didn't see anything or know anything. So um, I, I think that it really has enhanced our ability to report the truth. I call it journalism 2.0. It's the community interacting now with the professional journalists. And so the gatekeepers used to be, you know, really thoughtful and important members of our community and usually white males up until, you know, the 70s or 80s. And so nothing disparaging about them, but they had one view of the world. Now it's a much more um, nuanced view and hopefully larger community view. And uh, we are involved, I have a night center for the for innovation and sustainability in local media that um, we run at our uh, school. And we work with industry leaders in figuring out the future for the industry. Um, and so I'll just give you a short, exciting change that I've seen over the four years that we've been doing this. The first couple of years was all about the money. How were these newspapers in local communities going to keep abreast? Because they were advertising was dying, subscriptions were going away, people getting their news free on their phone. Why do they want to pay for the local paper? Um, what's happened in the last four years? It's, it's no longer just about that. It's about understanding your audience. Who is your audience? Are you serving your audience? Do they want to be participants in your news organization? So Savannah, Memphis. And Knoxville, three Southern cities were part of our current group. And last month I was on the program where they've come back as they're doing their strategies. And what they discovered is Savannah particularly had no respect in the black community. 
people didn't trust the Savannah News. They didn't think they were, particularly in the black community, didn't think that they were being well covered or had a voice there. Knoxville and Memphis had different. They are now all working because they also have different leadership and they have a more diverse staff. And they are really working to create a relationship with all of Savannah, all of Memphis, all of Knoxville. And their subscriptions have gone up, their finances have gone up, they've had wins, as we say. But why? Because they're serving the audience. And that's where I think journalism was in a free fall because it had gotten arrogant. We know what the news is. Oh, the hell with those folks. You know, we'll tell you. We, they got humble real quick when, when finances changed. And I think that what the 2020s are about and going forward is understanding who our audiences are and where they are, and that the news organizations start to reflect the diversity nuance of their own community. And that that's going to be their answer to survival. And it's also um, a really hopeful moment, I think. So that brings me to asking, um, are there challenges to getting a diverse workforce in schools of journalism? Or are you finding that you have many people across, you know, a broad spectrum who want, who are excited about this field? Hard. <laughs> hard to hire, you know, well, it's just hard to get as diverse a workforce as you want. And it's a real pressure point for our creditors. Our creditors are really demanding a much more diverse faculty because the news organizations and, and PR, you know, ethical communication groups need a more diverse workforce as well. So it is a top priority by our creditors and certainly a top priority, but I don't have that much money to keep hiring. <laughs> I, I do have some hope in that area because um, the university where I teach is a Hispanic, is now a Hispanic serving university, which means that we have at least 24% of our student body is Hispanic and uh, Latino. And um, we also have, we also are a minority serving institution. So that means that you know, I, I believe the last statistics I saw was that um, there are more students of color than there are white students at our university now. Oh, wow. So we do, I mean, we do have a big chance to um, get diverse people out into the industry. I will say that one of the things that concerns me that I see with, with our students who have gone into the industry is that burnout is big. Um, I've seen quite a few go into journalism and leave after five years because the pressures that are on journalists now, they have to do everything. So, you know, when I was a reporter, yeah, it was a tough job. I used to have to go out and cover all these stories all day, but I didn't have to keep up my social media presence. I didn't have to, you know, shoot photos, shoot video myself in addition to writing the stories. So, um, you know, since, since there've been so many cuts in the industry and journalists have to do more, I think it's become an even tougher job. And I, I have seen a lot of students who will go into journalism and then will leave for another industry that pays better and has better working hours, such as public relations or advertising or uh, working, you know, writing for a corporation or, you know, um, the writing skills and, and writing and visual skills that they get really do translate into a lot of other industries. So um, that's something that journalism is going to have to figure out, not, not burning out its, its young reporters. 
We, we also have an organization at, um, at the Hussman School called the Ida B. Wells Society. And it was started by three um, incredibly successful journalists, Nicole Hannah-Jones, who is our um, alum, and I hope our new Knight Professor in Race and Investigative Journalism, still working on that. Um, Ron Nixon, uh, executive at AP, and Topher Sanders at ProPublica. And they are three investigative journalists who were uh, saw that they were few in number when they went to the uh, investigative journalist conference in America. And they decided they needed to work to really train and network young journals of color. And they've raised a few million dollars in the last couple of years, um, and particularly in the last year. But that not only burnout, it is you're often lonely. You're often carrying the burden of your Latino community or your African-American community or your Asian-American community, you know, and you need some substance and you may be also pushing story ideas, you know, with your editor and they're like, you know, not. and so they have been very successful in creating a network of new journalists, but I'm talking 20 somethings to 30 somethings um, so that they have long careers because we can't afford to have the burnout so that after five years, these now even more talented young um, journalists go on for a better lifestyle. But it is, journalism has to be also a mission. You must feel that you are talking to your committee community and helping them understand the change in America. You have to believe that or it's hard to do. As you see um, so many different fragments of what we describe as journalism now, right, where people do have so many options. So once upon a time, you either went into television, into radio, or, in, or you did the newspaper business. And that, those were your three choices. But now you've got cable, you've got all kinds of stuff. You, I mean, and you always had magazines. But I mean, people can start their own news outlet, whatever that is, um, very easily, right? They just start a YouTube thing and they get subscriptions and away they go. So um, if people are feeling like, if you have people, young people who feel like they're not having the opportunities to tell their community stories correctly or as they wish um, in traditional uh, media settings, um, what is the impetus for them then to move on to some of the more what we're calling, what they may not call non-traditional media um, outlets? Well, I'd like to give a shout out to a media outlet that started a little over a year ago called the 19th. I'm not sure if y'all are familiar with the 19th, but I think it's a really great model for the type of journalism organization our students would be interested in going into. It's called the 19th because of the 19th Amendment to the Constitution, which uh, granted women the right to vote. And um, they put an asterisk on it to indicate the fact that, yes, white women got the right to vote in 1920, but still black women and other women were um, impeded from being able to vote. So they are really committed to covering stories about women, about um, people of color, about LGBTQ, about disabled, um, about all of these marginalized communities that aren't really covered as much in mainstream media, which still, as Susan has said, focuses on white males, because if you look at statistics, um, you know, even when you uh, do studies and examine content of 
any mainstream media, it still focuses heavily on the stories about white males. Um, so these other kinds of media outlets, I think are gonna start taking hold and give people, give journalism uh, students and journalists the chance to tell other kinds of stories that haven't been told. That kind of competition could be good, yes? Mm -hmm. Oh, mm -hmm. yeah. And, and the cool thing about the 19th is they uh, offer their content to other organizations. So, you know, if another news organization wants to pick up their story, they can. And then those stories get wider reach yeah. and people hear more about things that, you know, they might not be able to read about in their regular newspaper or their see on their regular local television news or even on cable news cable. Or network news mm -hmm. yeah i'm a big fan of the 19th we've been trying to get a reporter we're hoping to get somebody on for one of our episodes but that's oh, a good progress <laughs> that's a work in progress so let me ask you this because i know we don't have a lot of time left and this is a great conversation um both of you are in places right now where there's a lot of national news going on, right? So um, we could um, sort of introduce, and I don't think, uh, you know, about talk about the, the major news stories that are going on. Well, for you, um, Susan, right on your campus, right? So that every day um, there, you know, for the last couple of months, at least, um, we have had these ongoing news stories, of course, um, about Nicole Hannah-Jones. Um, and my question, not so much about how that's going to be resolved because time will tell, and um, but how this whole situation, as it continues to unfold, I saw a story today about, um, some of the professors now talking about is this a campus where they want to remain because if it feels like um, people of color are still in this sort of diminished status you know what is the incentive for us to want to continue to be a part of this going forward so as you have to as first of all as you have professors other professors on your campus as the dean of a school how are you having these difficult conversations with the people just in your faculty and your staff? And then how do you prepare them to have these conversations with budding journalists? Well, that's what we talk about all the time. And our um, tagline, you know, cause we're still PR and advertising. Our tagline that we created after our first strategic plan was we prepare students to ignite the public conversation. And boy, are we igniting it, okay, with Nicole. And Nicole was a, you know, a hire on our part with the Knight Chair, one prestigious organization. We went through all the processes of tenure and then hit a wall of some sorts. So two things come out of that. Everyone's experiencing, and I don't know what the fallout will be, because I do think you use just the right word. People feel that if a woman of her strength and caliber and status could be diminished in what the, you know the appearance of her hiring, how could they not be diminished? Um, but it's often my white students more than even my minority students are, who say, we need a more diverse faculty. They are hungry. They don't wanna see the world only from their hometown. You know, They want a wider scope. So what, what do we do at this time? Why I use the word ignite the public conversation because Nicole and I have become quite close and we realized soon that there was something else going on. It was more than just she, right? So um, in the world we're in right now, in this moment of change and partisanship. And, you know, we just had another election in North Carolina and became a stronger Republican um, state. And um, 
our board of trustees and our board of governors are all chosen by the Republican leadership in the state because when a Democratic governor was um, elected four years ago during the from the election night to the inauguration, they changed the law and took away his right to approve any board of trustees. So now it is only one party's board. And, you know, I believe in politics and the debate of politics, so I'm not going to disparage anyone. But critical race theory is now a brand that has been put across the country as a way to say this is negative. And Nicole got connected into that, you know, and, and they demonized her, I think, in a way, or the she's the poster child of this because of all of it. And all I can say is I write to every um, negative person, negative comment I get, as long as they aren't totally disgusting, I write back because, you know, journalism is never perfect. Mistakes are made. But why would someone of her stature be put into the Society of American Historians after 1619? Why is the Academy of Arts and Science just inducted her into the organization? She is a woman of intellectual strength and character. But I have to just take this as a moment of change and power. I'm a student of power. I covered Washington for 25 years. And I understand power is hard to give up. But this is a moment of transition. I have to keep my faculty optimistic, keep their values clear, and help our students gather through it, at both white and black students, not to feel, I don't want to make any of anyone guilty. I want them to face the changes that are going on into this society with respect. So I will not tolerate anyone talking in class, putting down anyone else, but I do believe those who disagree must articulate it. That, that's the hardest thing is getting that debate really out there. And if we become a one-sided campus in any way, then we are not really the intellectual centers of American debate that I think universities should be, particularly at this moment of change. It's so interesting because I remember that a few years ago, you would see um, universities um, resend invitations to graduation, to commencement exercises, because the person who had been selected to speak said something that somebody considered offensive or controversial, and they didn't want controversy on the campus and all of that. Um, but I think that as we're having this reckoning with race, um, this kind of controversy is going to probably, you know, appear on in every facet, which is one of the reasons why we want to have these conversations, um, and particularly, in, you know, as it relates um, to journalism and to the media and to all of that. And it just seems such an interesting time that all of this is going on at the same time as we're having this great reckoning with race. And what does that say that even a school, even a university, uh, you know, um that has stood you know certainly for for intellectual growth is is struggling with some of the same things i mean i realize it's just it's regular society but um and and um so that that's just really fascinating and i think it'll be interesting to see again how this unfolds and ultimately um what the what the answer is and time will tell
Um, so that takes me back to you, Tracy, because of course in Texas, we've got the voting rights issue going on, which is huge, right? That every day it too is, is in the news. I mean, uh, North Carolina makes the news sometimes for a lot of reasons and other than, but uh, Chapel Hill is holding it, holding down the fort for us at this moment, pretty much. <laughs> we've had a moment of, you know, kind of calm. Um, but but uh, the voting rights issues, of course, it is a nationwide problem national problem. We know that. And of course, we've seen all of these states moving their laws, creating, they, as we say, looking for a problem where there was none. But when you're looking at students and you talk about your, your school in particular being more representative of people of color and the, and the community where you are, how do they respond? How do they want to respond in a field like journalism to what they're seeing going on and how they feel that maybe their communities are being disparaged at this time? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it sort of comes down to a debate that's going on in journalism right now, which also ties in with what's going on in North Carolina, um, of this notion of objectivity, you know, and, and personally, I've never tried to teach objectivity to students, because objectivity is impossible. Everybody has opinions, everybody has feelings. So what I've tried to teach is fairness. Um, then we, you know, we get down to like, when I was in journalism school, I was taught there are two sides to every story. Well, no, there's really not two sides to every story. There are way more than two sides to every story. And, you know, we try to teach that it's the obligation of students to try to reflect all of those sides of the story. One of the things that I find now with our students is they feel really passionately about the issues that they're reporting on. So how do they weigh that with, with fairness? Well, I think that's a debate that's going on in journalism schools right now. Um, a lot of times, you know, the media is criticized for being too partisan or taking too much of a stance on specific issues. But should we be taking a stance on some of these issues? You know, if something is blatantly wrong as journalists, shouldn't we be calling it out? Mm -hmm. um, one of or these why? <laughs> why? <laughs> exactly. We should be reporting on it. We should be reporting. This is not true. And I think that we see, we've seen some of that reported. Um, there was a change in reporting when Trump was president, where journalists at first tried to just report on him, him objectively, and then realize, no, I need to say, you know, the president said this, and that is not true. So uh, I, I think that that's one of the debates that's going on in journalism schools about how do we do this? How do we report this? How do we cover people um, who are protesting, who maybe are out in public and um, don't want their photo taken, you know, and, and splashed all over the internet because they're concerned with somebody retaliating against them. Um, and if they ask us not to publish their photo or show their video, you know, do we have an ethical obligation to consider that? You know, old school journalists will say, oh, they're out in public. They deserve to have their, you know, picture when I'm doing whatever. But, um, you know, there's, there's all kinds of ethical de debates going on. And 
these students, when they do feel passionately about these issues, you know, how do we teach them to report fairly on the issue, but also tell the truth about, you know, what has happened. And I think that's, <laughs> that's what the 1619 project is all about as well. Um, you know, here, here's what we've always been taught, but here's what actually happened. Um, and, and it's important to know these things. And so you mentioned Texas. Yes, some of these topics are very controversial here in Texas. Um, and it, sometimes it's hard to have these kinds of conversations, but there are important conversations to have and we need to bring them up. And some people aren't going to like them. They're just not going to like them. And um, too bad, you know, it's, it, these are the conversations that we have to have. <laughs> That's a great answer. So <laughs> as you're preparing, um, finally, as you're preparing students now, um, do they have to be specialists? Are they generalists about the world? Are they, I mean, I remember the whole debate at one point about, should you be a mass communications? And I thought about this, Susan, when you said, I'm an English major. And I can remember a news editor telling me one time, go and become an English major. You'll always have a job. If you're a mass communications major, this could get a little iffy sometimes. So <laughs> the question is, because you're too much of a generalist. So, but the question is in this day and time, what is it that we expect our journalism students to be? I mean, how much of specialists in how many different fields do they really need to be? Well, I, I think that usually you're a generalist. I was a White House correspondent and every day you had another topic and boy, did you feel humbled, right? What do I know about the F-15 or the F-15? And that was a major White House story that day. And the next day it would be a story about race or the next story would be about a tariff, you know, or so you never can be a specialist enough, I think, particularly if you're in broadcasting. Um, but I think you have to learn context and you have to, you have, there was an emphasis in the early 2000s about, you know, digital video and, and, you know, pipes, when I want to say the pipelines, you know, and we got to teach them how to write uh, for digital versus, you know, newspapers versus, I think we got to teach them how to think. And I think more than anything, how to um, find the answers to what they need to know. I think we have to really teach students to be critical thinkers, to not accept the first answer. And Tracy even talked to him why that was important. You know, um, uh, I think we have to teach them to be fearless, to stand up, you know, truth to power, right? Um, that is one of the great things you have to do. And not everyone can do that. So I do think you have to be experienced on more pipes over you've got to be a good writer and you've got to be able to talk because right now if you break a story as a newspaper person somebody's going to want you to do a podcast or go on cable television so you have to have facility across all that areas and challenge and yes somebody also say and by the way take video and post it you know so but i don't think you have to be great in all those areas i think there's an area you may feel better at better at writing or better at visuals and you know you can work on it but i think you have to be um deeply deeply curious and a constant learner because that to me is the exciting part about being a journalist is that every day it's a way to challenge your own assumptions of what the world is. And you have to care about having a conversation with your community. You have to think that the American conversation um, or your 
Dallas conversation or the Chapel Hill conversation is worth your best time and effort. And that is your psychic reward. Fantastic. Tracy, to, last thoughts? Yeah, I have to agree 100%. And, you know, um, specialization in this day and age is not a good idea because their jobs are changing. You never know what kind of job you're going to get. I try to encourage students to be really flexible. Um, you know, a lot of students will say, well, I want to be a sports broadcaster. Well, good luck with that. Um, you know, keep your options open because, you know, there's only so many sports broadcasters and um, perhaps you want to think about going into business writing or going into public relations or, go, you know, because there's so many different things that you can do and you can't be guaranteed that that job that you want is actually going to be there. So um, we try to give them as many skills as, as they can get. And like Susan said, the critical thinking and the curiosity are the two things that are so important. Um, if they want to be a journalist, they really do have to be able to think critically, analyze, synthesize, and um, also be able to be really curious and ask questions and um, push people for answers. And one thing I wanted to ask to add to that, Tracy, is I do believe that objectivity is one of the professional qualities that we can take. As a journalist, I know it's under debate right now and no one's objective. We all have our biases, but I often feel my job as a reporter is to go in. I have a thesis hypothesis, you know, but go in and find out where the reporting is and be free enough to be able to share that with the public rather than I want the answer to be this. You know what I mean? That's oh, yeah. the difference. That's the real mark of it. And for me, objectivity will be a strength in this country. And when we rebuild the trust with the public because the media does have a problem on that front. Objectivity will really be there when we have really diverse newsrooms so that we have women and minorities and of all the communities, gender and, and religion and political thought um, so that there is this um, fulcrum of different ideas. That's when objectivity will really resonate because right now I sort of say who can be objective like during last summer when the debate was can black reporters go out and cover the George Floyd debates what only white reporters can do that well wait a minute here so for me objectivity is being professional about getting the reporting and the information you need and letting the public see that and come up with some decisions but it has to be in a newsroom that is really reflective of the diverse um, members of that community then objectivity will thrive because the community will be represented. That's fantastic. Thank you all so very much. I mean, I think that you've helped us a lot with our curiosity about the role of journalists in, um, in today's society and for the future and how it continues to evolve. And um, I think it is an exciting field and we are just so excited that you joined us today. Um, to Dr. Everbach again and Dean King, to you, our audience, we hope that you will join us again for another episode of Roundtables in Race.